If God is a rewarder of those who seek him, that means God is a good God. That means I need to have the understanding that God is not just good, that he loves me, and that he has my best interests in mind. If I understand this, if I grasp that, I'm on the road to joy. Success, the ABCs of joy, and Philippians chapter 1 in part 3 of our series, The Can-Do and Joyous Christian. Hello, and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. We all want to be successful in life. As the saying goes, people don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. As we will discover in our study for this week, ultimately, success does not mean lack of failure, but rather life full of determination and perseverance in Christ. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we want to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. If you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now, here is Father Ward with the third part of the Can Do and Joyous Christian. be with you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us here safely. We thank you for the freedoms we have in this country, for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you for this faith community known as St. Bartholomew's, and we thank you for the people who are watching online. We pray now that your Holy Spirit would guide our discussion and help us to focus on your truths, that we might appreciate how you've made us and how you revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus, and how we can grow in our relationships. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, getting back to uh, a review of last study, if you were here, you know that uh, we talked about how the trajectory of our life, our lifestyle, how we live, comes from our world view, how we understand life. When we talk about worldview, we're talking about our understanding of God, our understanding of ourselves, our understanding of other people. And it is our worldview, our philosophy of life, that will dictate the attitudes that we have and our priorities in life. And our attitudes and our priorities will be the drivers for our actions. And those actions consist of good habits and bad habits. We all have them. And to the extent that we can develop good habits, which takes discipline, which is the harder road, bad habits are the easy way out, easy way to do it. No one has a hard time developing bad habits, right? It's good habits are the tough ones. That discipline then, those good habits, those actions that we do every day will develop, or I should say will determine our lifestyle and the trajectory of our life. And we talked about how a gentleman by the name of Jeff Olson, he wrote a book, The 
uh, slide. Um, I even remember what it's called. The uh, I'm going blank here. But anyhow, basically, um, the point was that people's va- values drive their actions. And again, those values come from uh, our uh, philosophy of life and, and, and will influ- influence our attitudes and then the actions. And then the results are the lifestyle. And it's really about little things we do each and every day. And every area of your life, in your relationships, in your finances, in terms of your body, your f- physical body, in terms of your diet, in terms of your education, in terms of your relationships, I may have already said relationship, all of that is affected. And so the challenge is to develop those good habits, those disciplines each and every day. And to the extent you can do that will be the extent to which you'll see success in life. Only 5% of people are really successful. You know, then 95% fail, right? It's true. And that's because there's only, only the people who are willing to take the, the hard road. And, and Jesus said, you know, following him is not going to be easy. You've got to take up your cross. You've got to deny yourself daily in order to follow the Lord. Uh, and he said, you know, don't, uh, uh, you know, if you, you better count the cost. Now it's worth it, uh, but it's that short-term discomfort, that short-term difficulty that we have to press through in order to see the benefits. Now that's true for trials in life. No one wants to go through a sickness. No one wants to go through a hardship. No one wants to really face, uh, you know, a surprise challenges, stressful challenges, but yet the only way to develop maturity, the only way to develop character, the only way to develop a depth of um, understanding so that you can help someone else in the same predicament is to go through it yourself. Uh, So uh, the slide rule, that's what it's called, the slide rule. Um, Very interesting. And again, when we talk about success, you know, there are different there are different standards of success. I mean, you can be a successful business person, a successful husband, a successful athlete, a scholar. You know, you can do all those things. Most people are not successful in every area of their life. However, if Jesus is Lord of your life and you're following the Lord and putting his principles into practice, chances are most of spheres of your life are going to be on that road. And, and, you know, we've got to be careful because it's easy to compare in, to us to other people. And, you know, and that success thing can be a little bit elusive. And, and the fact of the matter is we could be very unsuccessful at one stage of our life, but very successful in another stage of our life. But I think the rule of thumb is this. Just as Jesus gave the parable of the sower, the sower goes out to sow seed and only 25% uh, produce fruit. Only 25% hear the word, take it to heart, and then produce the fruit that's necessary. So there's always a minority of folks, it's just the way it is, that are actually going to get this and and run with it. It's not the majority. That's why Jesus said, broad is the road that leads to destruction, narrow is the gate that leads to life. Um, And so that's something we need uh, to keep in mind. Jesus kind of summed it up this way when he said in John chapter 15, verses 7 through 11, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So it's something we have to do and abiding is continuously, so that's daily again. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So we have to prove ourselves. 
I don't have to prove myself in terms of getting my salvation, but I have to prove that salvation is real in my life. That's why James writes, faith without works is dead, right? It isn't the works that's the basis for my justification. It's the faith in God's grace. But the works, though, demonstrate that I actually put my faith in the Lord. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Now, see, this is awesome because even though Jesus began to say, abide in me and my words, which are very important, it all flows from a loving relationship with our Father through Jesus. A person's life will be determined by how they view God. If they view God as a God who is unjust, as a God who is far away, as a God who doesn't care for them, that's going to affect every other part of their life. How they view people, how they view circumstances, it's devastating. It's why we read in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 6, that he who believes in God, uh, I'm sorry, um, I think it's verse 6 here, I'm going blank here, um, Without faith, it is, first thing, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who seek him. So what's the implication? If God is a rewarder of those who seek him, that means God is a good God. That means I need to have the understanding that God is not just good, that he loves me, and that he has my best interests in mind. If I understand this, if I grasp that, I'm on the road to joy. Because that means that I understand the promise from Romans 8.28, which is in the notes, For we know that God works all things together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. So that means I can trust God. And that means even though it might not seem the best thing for me to do because it's very uncomfortable, even though I'm going through a hardship, I know somehow God is going to do good through it, through it all, for my own good and for the benefit of others. But that takes faith. That takes perseverance. It takes time. And it takes prayer. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Isn't that great? Joy is an inside job. Joy cannot come from the outward, outward world of, of uh, material things or even people in of themselves. Like, you know, if someone says, hi, you know, and everyone's all nicey-nice, But if there's no depth, inner depth in relationship, that's all superficial. And so that's what Jesus is talking about, that joy within. Now, human beings are made in the image of God. And it is through the brain that our spirit and souls are communicated and conveyed. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. Just just wild. Just, I mean, think about this for a moment. You know, you see me, right? I'm just, uh, well, first of all, we're wonderfully... Made The greatest birthday present we all got was our human body, right? Now, you didn't get a choice in terms of what body you come with, but you do get a choice in how you're going to use that body. And so the greatest gift is, yes, actually our spirit, soul, life itself, but that we have a body to express the spirit of the soul. And to think that everything that you see now that's coming out of me is coming out of the invisible realm of the spirit, the soul, the mind, right? It's a lot going on. And the only reason why you're able to tap into Father Ward's mind right now, his spirit and soul, is because I'm communicating that outwardly. 
And so we're just much more than just a body. And even though we're fearfully and wonderfully made physically, and even though we've got all these different organs, the high point being the brain, uh, it, they all work together in unison to then convey the spirit and the soul of the person. And even though the body dies, the spirit and soul still remains. Pretty awesome when you think about it. Pretty wild. And so the brain is really where everything happens and where we can get stuck. Remember, the right side of the brain is the relational side. The left side is our verbal side. And so that's why joy comes from relationships, true joy, not just happiness. Happiness is based on circumstances. When the Bible talks about joy, it's, it's that sense of, of happiness or that, that euphoric feeling of knowing that things are going to be okay, even when they aren't seem to be okay. But that comes from relationships. And the reason why we know it comes from relationships is because the joy center of the brain, remember that's the fourth level, the joy center of the brain is behind the right eye. And it's our right side that's our relational side. So our right side is all about uh, entering into relationships with people. And our mirror neurons are developed by us watching people and observing people. The ABCs of joy, appreciation. We talked about that last week. I'm going to go into more detail uh, this week. How do we maximize our joy? Remember, we're studying Philippians. We'll get to Philippians in about 10 minutes uh, because uh, Paul has a lot to say about joy. But uh, there is a reason why the Lord, through his word, throughout his word, constantly tells us to give thanks. You think of the Psalms, how many times uh, we're told to give thanks in the Psalms. Think of Paul in 1 Thessalonians. He says, in everything, give thanks. Always be thankful. Uh, and so it's that gratitude, that expression of, a, expression of appreciation and reflecting on all that God is doing good in your life that actually increases our joy center. And so they say it's good to do an exercise of five minutes twice a day of reflecting on all the things you're grateful for. And you appreciate it, even writing them down. It's a great exercise. In fact, there was a, uh, a college course in one of the Ivy League schools where it's on gratitude, the power of gratitude. And, and the professor gave the students an exercise of writing down what they're grateful for. Because you see, when we start to appreciate, we then start to focus on all the positives in our life, what's good in our life. And that then brings us to recognizing what God is doing in our lives. And so psychologically and spiritually, that's a real positive. Uh, and so that's why uh, studies have shown that staying in a state of appreciation for five minutes or longer, two or more times each day is an important habit to develop for growing the joy center in your brain. And that's why the fastest way to jumpstart your grow, uh, growing your capacity for joy is to spend five minutes writing out what you appreciate uh, and ask yourself where you feel that emotion in your body. And then it's important to share what you appreciate with someone else, like a loved one. That's why for couples, that's why for any relationship, one of the best ways to supercharge a relationship is to always share what you appreciate about the other person at least a few times, or at least once a day. And not just, you know, oh, that was a great dinner. No, we could do a little better than that. You know, I really appreciate how much time you spend on that, and you, it's just amazing. You know, stuff, stuff like that. That's, what, that's important for us to hear that. You know, the old saying, you know, every bad word, you need like 10 good words to offset a bad word or something negative or critical. 
And so appreciation is huge. Uh, the, the second important aspect is uh, beliefs. Our brains need to be trained to develop a narrative that is rooted in optimism, is anchored in optimism. That our story is a story of redemption. It's a story of hope. It's a story of a bright future. Not a story of doom and gloom as the world would have us want to believe. Not a story that bad triumphs, that evil triumphs over good. That's not the narrative of the Lord. You, re- you have your read Revelation? We know who wins, right? Have you read the scriptures in terms of our future? And again, getting back to Romans 8, 28, that wonderful perspective where we know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And it's why that Paul will see later writes in Philippians 4, 8, that what we dwell on, if we dwell on those things that are worthy and excellent and pure of good repute, such things, let your mind dwell on them. Because our beliefs will affect our emotions. Now our emotions can affect our beliefs, right? But we need to say, wait a minute. What's God really saying to me in this time of emotional distress? One way to help manage your beliefs when your emotions are taking control is to write down the beliefs that are causing your upsetting emotions. Write them down and then say, okay, well, what does God say about this? And ask yourself, what would Jesus, what is Jesus doing through this? And what would he say through this? That's why in our daily devotions, journaling is so important. Not just to highlight what God is showing us through his word, not just to express what we're going through in terms of our needs, but also to express our thanksgiving, writing down the things we're grateful for, appreciation, but also maybe writing down the things that are causing us um, hard, you know, uh, uh, trying emotions. And again, what does God say about them? And it's why having a good understanding of God's word is so important or necessary for countering faulty beliefs. Again, there's something to be said when we share this in the context of another loved one. While there is great power if we do our daily devotions by ourselves, there's even greater power when we do it with another person. And then the third would be connections. We know that the Lord created us to be in loving relationship. The first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. So it's those connections. Now, we know that Jesus said that he came that we might have life and might have it abundantly, but the thief comes to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. So Satan, we need to understand, wants to kill our relationships. The best way to kill a relationship is to isolate us, to separate us from those we love, to separate us from God. And the way Satan does that is through deception. He gives a false narrative. And so then we cut ourselves off from other people that isolates us and we no longer have the connections we need to grow in love and to face life. The fact of the matter is that when you feel safe, calm, and connected, 
It will increase your capacity to deal with hard things, right? I'm going to have emotional maturity, not just going through hardship, but knowing that someone's there with me to go through it. Others who will walk through your hard issues. And such loving attachments will allow us to return to emotional joy and peace more quickly. Most people wait for others to connect with them. Remember, Jesus had to go to take the initiative. So there is something to be said for us to try to connect with others emotionally. And one of the ways you can do that is to try to instill joy in people, even throughout the day. Think about how can I bring a smile to someone else's face? How can I be an encouragement to them? How can I help them out? That's a way you reach out. That's a way of building connections, even if they're only for a few moments. How much more is that important for the connections we already have, the loving relationships we already have? Now, of course, a strong connection with God serves as an anchor even in those times when we are cut off from others, like I said earlier, and it gives us confidence that no matter what happens, we are never alone. That is why if you have a strong faith in God and if you know God has your back, you can pretty much face anything. Now behind the ABCs of returning to joy, appreciation, beliefs, and connections, there's something else that we need to also keep in mind, and that would be uh, quieting. In order to truly express appreciation, in order to truly kind of step back and gain that strength and that peace from the Lord, we have to be able to learn to quiet ourselves. Quiet ourselves when we get emotionally rattled, when we're in stressful uh, situations, and we'll talk. We'll give some uh, specifics uh, in future uh, studies on how to do that. Um, and it also means quieting ourselves, you know, just with the Lord uh, during the day. That's why daily devotions are important. But that quieting allows us to appreciate, and also appreciation actually flows into quieting. Actually, because when you start to appreciate, you can kind of calm down and say, "Hey, you know what? Things aren't as bad." maybe as they seem. Our thought life, again, involves our beliefs. They drive our left brain emotions. The beliefs do. And so if your thought life is out of control, chances are then your emotions will be out of control. And so quieting our minds from racing thoughts, replacing negative thoughts, and learning how to dwell on life-giving thoughts are crucial skills for building bounce. I don't know if I mentioned this, but uh, this basically these... ABCs, and, and what I'm taking is from the book called Building Bounce, and the good way to look at it is if you've got the joy of the Lord, it's like a ball that's full of air. And so what happens when you have a ball full of air? It bounces really nice, right? But if you get the air out, the ball kind of goes flat. It can't bounce. You don't have the joy of the Lord in you, you're not going to be able to bounce. You're not going to be able to be resilient. You're not going to be able to return to joy when you get flustered, when you get overcome. And again, to view our connections as actually joy bonds, that people either connect relationally either with a joy bond where they're happy to see the other person, where the other person builds them up, or a fear bond where they're kind of a little hesitant to be with that person. They're, they're looking at that person as, do I really, can I really trust them? I've got to put a facade on to deal with them. 
uh, and it's really bad in families if, if the attachments are based with fear bonds because it's all about trying to either measure up, you're trying to earn your love. And so if people bond with God with fear bonds, that's not healthy, right? Because they're either going to go down the legalistic route of always having to do stuff to please God, to think God is some angry man in the heavens ready to strike them down, or they're just going to totally run from God. They won't have anything to do with him because they understand or they look at it at him through a fear bond so that's just some things some practical things to keep in mind what brain science teaches us uh, what our life experience teaches us and of course what the word confirms so uh, paul continues he he gave an opening address remember he's writing to the philippian church he's imprisoned in rome he is awaiting uh, trial. He possibly could be executed. And so he writes to a church that he founded, a church in Philippi in Macedonia. And he's writing to encourage the believers there. And that church is a, a fairly, it's a poor church, but it's a very vibrant church, a very committed church, a giving church, a church that brings Paul joy. And so he commends the, the church for the most part. There's very little in terms of criticism uh, or concern. There are a couple uh, references that we'll talk about uh, later, but um, for the most part, it's a wonderful, heartwarming letter of encouragement and a letter that has many references to rejoicing and to the joy of the Lord. Uh, so in any event, let us now look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. So uh, what does God do what God does with our circumstances. So Paul continues writing. He says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So the reason why Paul can have joy is because he understands that principle that we talked about earlier, and that is that God will use our circumstances for good, for his glory. But we need to be aware of that. We need to be willing to let go and not to let it overwhelm us. And Paul could have been overwhelmed in prison because he said, man, I can't preach the gospel anymore. I can't plant any more churches. This is not good, Lord. What are you trying to do? And Paul didn't go down that road. He actually, for just testifying and trusting God and Christ, he ended up able to share the gospel with the Praetorian Guard, the palace soldiers in Rome, and many others, I'm certainly others who were in prison, the jailers. And so... The gospel was getting out. So for Paul, that's a win-win. You'll see that Paul's perspective is totally kingdom-minded. It's not on himself. It's not on his circumstances. It's not on this world. It's all about the kingdom. So the first benefit was the gospel actually was getting out in places that it would never have gone out before. Paul would have never been able to go into the heart of Rome and plant a church among the Praetorian Guard, unless he was incarcerated. 
Second, his example inspired believers throughout the empire to not be ashamed of the faith, but to step out and to uh, preach the gospel and to share Christ with others. So his example motivated others. And isn't that true when we, we see people who are doing something that's really amazing faith-wise? And so it kind of puts things in perspective to highlight that what you're concerned about here in America and some of the challenges that we have really aren't so big. It's why, because we don't have the right perspective. We have to have the bigger picture perspective, that there are people right now suffering for the faith. There are people in jail. There are people who are being martyred. There are people who are testifying to the grace of God, and God is supplying their every need in the midst of the hardship. And so, again, Paul is reminding us that he is trusting God because he knows God is going to take care of things and is going to do good even in the midst of the the tribulations. He continues, he says, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ, even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. So Paul is saying that as a result of this increased boldness, more believers are out there preaching the gospel, more, more leaders are planting churches. That's a good thing. Some do it out of love. That's the greatest motivation. That's the purest motivation is love, right? That is what drives joy, is good, solid, trusting, loving relationships. But some are actually doing this out of selfish ambition. What's in it for them? The attention that they're going to receive the power and prestige that they're going to receive. And even some are doing it in competition with Paul, basically saying, hey, look at, well, look at what I'm doing now, Paul. You can't do as good a job as that I'm doing. Now, this highlights a sad truth in the church. Notice that these are not people who are preaching a false gospel. They're preaching a good message. But the fact of the matter is, I think we all know this, that not every pastor, not every preacher, not everybody who's in leadership in a church is doing it for the right reasons. And not everybody who comes to church is in church for the right reasons, for the right motives, right? Now we have to be careful because when it comes to motives, we really can't judge. Only God can judge the thoughts and intentions. We have to be careful. You can kind of tell if you spend enough time with someone over a period, uh, over a period of time, if you spend enough time, you can kind of get a hunch. But the fact of the matter is there are some uh, leaders out there that are just doing it because of the money, believe it or not, yes. Because of the, hey, it makes them feel, you know, power and prestige. And that happens, right? And sometimes you know if that's the case when things implode in their ministry for whatever reason. They weren't doing it for the right motives. But what does Paul then say? What then? Only that in every way, verse 18, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. So Paul is saying, you know what? Even if they're doing it for poor motives, and don't, mis- don't think he's saying it's okay to do things out of poor motives, and it's not. That's hypocrisy. Selfish ambition, not a good thing. That's of the flesh. That's not of the spirit. But Paul still has the kingdom mindset And he says, you know what, even though 
They're not doing it for the right motives. At least the gospel is getting out. So the fact of the matter is when people would criticize or I'd hear people criticize like televangelists or certain, you know, you know what? Yeah, some of them might be off and stuff and we can't condone everything. But if the gospel message is getting out, people still, lives will still be changed. Not because of the preacher, but because of the message and because of the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with that message. But again, Paul could rejoice because he had the right perspective of things. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So he goes beyond not just the perspective of getting the gospel out, but he knows that people are praying for him. So even though there might be people with poor motives or aren't supporting him, there's still people praying for him, and he's got the Spirit of the Lord working with him. What's most important to face the battles of life It's our relationships. We do it together, not in isolation, and it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the key. We have to be Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, and we do it with other believers. That's how we maximize our potential. That's how the gospel truly is proclaimed in a way that grows and changes lives. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope. So this is another thing. An attitude that we're to have is not just an attitude of gratitude, but an attitude of expectation that God is going to do something good, that God is going to do something big. And it's always grounded in hope. When, when we talk about hope in the scriptures, we're not talking about a wishful kind of thinking hope. That, oh, I'm going to hope so. I hope it's going to happen. But it's the good that God has that, that we're looking forward to, that we're approaching. We haven't received it yet, but we're going to receive it. The ultimate hope is Christ's return. That's why it's called the blessed hope in the scriptures. But notice that Paul is saying, I have, I'm expecting God to do a miracle. I am hopeful that I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So again, what's, Christ, what's Paul's perspective? Christ's exaltation. The kingdom mindset, even if he dies or he lives. And this is really unpacked in the next six verses. Six verses that you've heard me say from the pulpit. Every Christian should probably read at the beginning of their day or have on the refrigerator, especially in this world that likes to not talk about death, that likes to sugarcoat death, that views death as the worst possible thing, the end-all, be-all. The fact of the matter is, we put too much stock in this life. And Paul, again, has the right perspective when he continues and he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Isn't that a great statement? To live is Christ. Right? It's all about a relationship with Jesus. It's all about reflecting Christ. It's all about growing in Christ. It's all about being with others in Christ. It's all about sharing Christ with others. That's where it's at. I understand life through understanding who Jesus is. I understand how worth, how much I am worth understanding Jesus' value. I understand the depth of my sin because of what he did on the cross. I understand how this world really is because of his life. 
I understand the hope because of his resurrection and my future. It's all Christ. So to live is Christ, and yet Paul says to die is gain. What does that mean? That is death is much better than living this life. But then Paul says, if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. So why are we here on earth for fruitful labor? You can come back on me, Jimmy. Fruitful labor. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Did you catch that? The most important motivation for you wanting to live life is not so you just enjoy life, even though that's important. Don't get me wrong. We're to try to enjoy life. But honestly, there's a lot more hardship in some respects um, than enjoyment. Not always, but it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a tension, right? It's both hand. But Paul is saying that it's not about just enjoying life or what's in it for me, but it's about how can I impact the people around me? That the reason why you're alive, the reason why I'm alive isn't just for ourselves. It's because of everybody else. Because everybody else needs you. And until your work is done, impacting people on this earth, you're here. When your work is done, then God will call you home. That's why as long as you have breath and as long as you're mentally cognizant, you have work to do. Even if it means praying, all you can do is lay in bed and pray. You still have work to do. But Paul admits, he says, death is better. That is very much better. Verse 23, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. So Paul doesn't know fully yet if he's going to be released, but he has a hunch. And in fact, church tradition and history tells us that he was released from this imprisonment to serve a few more years, and then he eventually was rearrested, and then he was executed under, under the emperor Nero. But notice that Paul, again, his perspective, death is not a bad thing for the believer. It's much better. That's why people who've had near-death experiences often have a, a, a peace, have an assurance, do not have a fear of death anymore. It changes their life. It's not a big deal anymore. And many of you have heard my father's testimony, well, maybe years ago. I'm trying to get him to have us tape it. Um, so we can put it on YouTube or whatever, but he had a near-death experience when he coded, uh, when he had a heart attack back in 91, and he had uh, surgery at Toronto General eventually because of what developed from the original heart attack, uh, but he was going. He said it was kind of like the, uh, you know, at the AMC theaters when they had the uh, popcorn, and, and you're kind of going like this. It's almost like you're going through a, 
a tunnel and you're up and down or whatever and they have all the popcorn popping well no he didn't see popcorn popping or anything like that or candy but he said it was like a tunnel he's just going there and then he, there was this light and he knew he was meeting the lord and then he was stopped uh and and he was like well, you know why i'm being stopped and basically he heard the message you have to go back for your family and he was torn at that point because he didn't want to go back and he always kept his family first kept us first that was most important in his life outside of the lord and so he was torn because he felt guilty because he said, I don't want to go back to my family, but I know I should go back to my family. Uh, and the Lord basically said, no, you got to go back for your family. And then when he came to, he saw the parish priest, Father John Smiley, he's going to anoint him with oil. And his first reaction in his heart was, don't do me any favors. I don't want to come back. Um, so um, my dad was a strong believer before that, but now, I mean, he's, he's not, um, yeah, it's like he says, hey, when my time's up, God's going to tap him on the shoulder and he's out of here. Uh, and that was now almost 30 years later. He was supposed to have a heart transplant five years uh, after he had the surgery where they removed a third of his heart at Toronto General. Um, so it's quite, quite a remarkable um, testimony. And it was great that he did come back, uh, not only for me, but for my mom, who many of you know went home to be with the Lord last November, and for my brother, who had to face cancer a second time and died at 33. And so my brother, obviously, uh, he had 18 months of chemo and all that. Um, back in 03 to 04. But there were a lot of times that, even though, again, my brother was strong in the faith, he needed to be reassured uh, about death. I mean, think about yourself when you were at 33, 33 years of age, 32. You know, your perspective is different than you are now. Um, you know, you still have life to live. You're not as maybe mature or experienced in terms of life. Uh, and so my dad was able to really comfort him and to encourage him that it's not that big of a deal. Uh, and so that was just one example. Many examples. My dad's had an opportunity to share his testimony with literally probably hundreds of people over the years. Um, but in any event, um, it's the right perspective to have. To live as Christ, to die as gain. We need to be reminded of it because in our Western culture, like I said earlier, we try to sugarcoat death and we try to keep people away from it and facing their own mortality. Uh, not so for Paul. So Paul uh, wraps it up by saying in verses 27 through 30, and you can turn now back, Jimmy, to this passage. So now that he gives us the right perspective, he then, in terms of what he's, how he understands things, and it's the way we're supposed to understand things, otherwise this would not be recorded, and we wouldn't be talking about it 2,000 years later. He then challenges the Philippian believers. He challenges all of us that this should be true if we have the kingdom mindset and if we understand that to live is Christ, to die is gain. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. In the kingdom, character and conduct is king. I mean, obviously, Jesus is king. But as it pertains to how we respond to Jesus the King, it is your character and it's your conduct that's most important. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent. So Paul is longing to see the Philippian believers. He's not sure yet. He thinks he's going to be able to see them again. I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The spirit is that of us that we are focused on the uh, of moving and doing the things of God. That we're reflecting the things of God. The mind, that's a reference to 
our focus in terms of, of uh, what our mind is thinking about. So it's kind of a combination of both. I mean, they're kind of interrelated, mind, spirit. You know, the spirit deals more with the, the will. Uh, the mind is what you're thinking about and where your focus is or your direction, but then you, 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 you put it into action by the spirit. But notice that there should be unity in the church, one mind, one spirit, for what? The gospel, for the faith, the things that are most important in terms of our relationship with the Lord. Things like prayer, things like biblical study, things like devotions, things like reaching out in Christ's name to help the poor, the sick, things like uh, making sure the gospel is getting out to the community in, in our own personal lives, but also throughout the world. That's where our unity should be. And hence, we shouldn't squabble over trivial things. Like what color is such and such? Or, you know, there's all these little things that people get all upset about. But anyway, don't worry, I'm not painting anything. (laughs) He continues, though, and says, this is another reason why we need to be unified. Because you can't really accomplish the work of the gospel unless there's unity. Otherwise, people would be going in all sorts of directions. But he also says we need to be united because of persecution in no way alarmed by your opponents which is a sign of destruction for them but of salvation for you and that too from God for to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake you know uh, I'm going to talk on this and then Jimmy you can put it back on me Um, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me so what Paul is saying is listen the same conflict that I've had Dealing with the opposition by Jews and the authorities because I simply am preaching the gospel is the same you're going to face. And you're already facing it, Philippian believers. And the fact of the matter is all of us will face some sort of persecution if we're testifying to Jesus. We may be rejected. So as we try to instill joy in others and try to shine the light of Christ, some people may reject us. But just because someone rejects us doesn't mean we stop. Because for everybody who rejects us, there are going to be 10 people who will accept it or be happy that we reached out. But the fact of the matter is that we live in a hostile world. That is why it's so important for the church to be united. I believe that the reason why most churches in the United States don't work together that much, that we kind of remain in our own silos, is because we have the conveniences of no pressure. Even though our society, our culture, our media, our education... They're pretty hostile to the gospel. Now, I mean, there's a lot of Christians in the, in, the, in the government in different places, and that helps. It counters it. But the fact of the matter is, we have an enemy. And the sooner that the church can work together more across denominational lines to address the issues that we face as believers, and as it comes to in terms of right and wrong and morality, the better we're going to be able to deal with the onslaught. Because right now we have the luxury of just kind of being in our own silos, doing our own thing, because we're not, you know, worried about food or anything like that. You know, we're just, we're able to just have that luxury. But we may not have that luxury. And if we don't build the bridges now, it's going to be a lot harder to do it when the pressure comes. That said, it's amazing. When there is persecution, the true church does galvanize. And uh, there, there is growth. Um, we haven't had that yet, but it may be coming. In any event, Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you also. Uh, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted. Rejoice. 
So uh, rejoice when you're persecuted. So it is, it is a fact of life, but Paul was able to maintain that joy, that right perspective. He didn't let his assessment level two switch go be triggered, right? Think about that. If you're facing persecution, resistance, if you know people are coming after you because you're a believer, the normal thing is to have level two, your assessment, you're on off trigger, right? Because it's fight, flight, or freeze. But Paul didn't have that problem. He was content. He was at peace. He was filled with joy. He knew God had his back. He was trusting the Lord and waiting to see what God would do. That's the way to tackle your problems. That's the way to handle the stresses of life. That's how we maintain and grow in joy. been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue our series, The Can Do and Joyous Christian. Until then, we leave you with this verse from Paul's epistle to the Philippians. Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. God bless.